Hi, and welcome back to Sharp Scratch. You're listening to episode 76, Too Much Medicine. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where medical students, junior doctors, and expert guests come together and discuss all the things you need to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not get taught in medical school. I'm Pat, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at Anglia Ruskin University. And for this episode, I'm glad to be joined by our friends Izzy and Anna. Izzy, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Izzy and I'm a final year medical student at Nottingham. Cool. Haven't seen you in a while on Shout Scratch. So, no, no, yeah. I've been I've been doing finals, so I have been missing in action for a bit of a while. I think the last one I was on was with Lily. And you've also passed your finals as well, right? Yes, that is a, that is a thing. So, yeah, since I first started this podcast when I was a third year, I've now gone all the way through my clinical years and covid so yeah yeah great to have you back on the podcast and and anna would you like to introduce yourself yeah for anyone who's a regular listener i have just been on the last one i believe so um not so long for me uh yeah my name's uh, anna harvey and i'm an academic foundation doctor in the northern deanery currently based in carlisle in cumbria which is glorious at the moment lovely weather awesome nice to have you joining us today and um, for this episode, I'm also delighted to introduce our expo guest today. Yeah, so I'm Martin Brunette. I'm a GP and a GP trainer um, in Godalming near Guildford. I've been a GP for about 20 years. Um, been quite interested in this today's topic um, for a long time, just because it's just so relevant to general practice. Um, and have some, yeah, I've written a bit about it, and and more recently, I've written about um, the GP consultation, written a book about the the, um, the consultation. With a, a sort of new way of thinking about it, um, and I enjoy doing a bit of freelance teaching about that as well. And I'm delighted to join you. Fantastic! Yeah, awesome. Thank you for joining us. Do no harm is a mantra that's drummed into medical students from day one of medical school. Most of us have gone into medicine because we believe medicine to be a force of good. However, too much medicine is capable of causing harm to patients and generating unnecessary waste. In this episode, we'll be exploring the topic of overdiagnosis. Now, um, this concept is only something that I learned about as I approached clinical years, and it's not something that I've come across in earlier years of med school. So I think it'll be helpful to kind of understand what the concept is before we start discussing. So, yeah, Martin, could you explain what overdiagnosis is? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is, it isn't interesting you started with do no harm, which is commonly something we're told we're meant to do as doctors. Um, I think it was part of the, the Hippocratic Oath. But actually, it's a nonsense. Um, we always do harm. You know, we prescribe a, a drug and it causes side effects. You get complications after surgery. Um, everything we do is a balance of risk and harm. Um, so minimise harm is probably would be better um, because do no harm is just unrealistic for us. Um, w- one of the particular harms that we can do without realising it is in the concept of over-medicalisation and over-diagnosis. So put simply, over-diagnosis would be a diagnosis that is not helpful to the patient or does them more harm than good, basically. Um, and there are lots of reasons why you might have that. I mean, first, you've got to get your head into the, the idea that there even could be such a thing as overdiagnosis. But if you if you make attach a diagnostic label to something um, and it's the wrong diagnosis, um, or maybe it's something that, that we've now called a disease that that wouldn't have been thought of as a disease um, and isn't actually that relevant to the patient. So, you know, we have there are lots of terms creeping in like 
pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension. You know, are these, are these diseases, are they actually helpful to the patient um, or could they harm the patient just by making them feel ill when they're, when they're not? Um, or a more overt overdiagnosis would be a diagnosis like diagnosing a very early cancer, particularly like prostate cancer, for instance, where, yes, that is the diagnosis. Clinically, it's the correct diagnosis. Under the microscope, it looks like prostate cancer. But actually, this patient in front of you never needed to know that diagnosis because it was never going to harm them. And then they may well be harmed by the treatment for it. Um, so there are lots of routes to overdiagnosis. But the first thing we need to do as a profession, which we're doing in recent years, but we need to do more, is recognising that it can be tremendously harmful to patients and a huge waste of resources as well. If you treat someone in a way that's not actually going to harm them rather than do them good, you're also using up resources just harming someone. And that's not why we went into medicine. See, that really interests me straight away um, from what you said about pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension. Because what I've always been taught, assumed, is that it's almost like a warning to the patient or almost like a, uh, I guess, like a a shock tactic in a way, which I'm, I guess, like, you need to change your lifestyle or this is going to happen, like Mm. the diabetes. Because at that point, I wouldn't say that, say, pre-diabetes, for instance, there isn't really a treatment apart from, you know, social prescribing, like, you know, fresh air to go outside, you know, change your diet, which is that really using up resources or is that actually in the long run saving resources for the NHS because you're not using up in the long run treatments or the drugs that might be needed or diabetes clinics because they're actually preventing going into the diabetic range of HbA1c when you said that actually it's tremendously harmful but actually in the long run could it be tremendously helpful uh which is, you know, the counterpoint, but I also see your view. And that's just my, straight into my head, I was thinking, because I've never been told that's a harmful thing to do, to worry a patient mm. like that. I've always been told, oh, it's a really useful thing to warn a patient that that's incoming. But I've never actually thought of the other yeah. side, which is really interesting. I mean, a lot of it depends on the person in front of you. So pre-diabetes is not necessarily a harmful term, um, but it didn't exist when I qualified. You know, you had diabetes or you didn't. Um, and when you, uh, when you give someone a label, it can change their mindset a lot. So there's, there's a good quote by Susan Sontag wrote um, about illness is the night side of life. And we're all dual citizens of both the illness. We have dual citizens of um, the illness side of life and the healthy side of life. And when we as doctors give someone a diagnostic label, potentially we, we push them into the you know, the citizenship of the, the night side of life, the disease side, all of a sudden I'm, I've got a disease, I've got a label. Um, and sometimes that can be helpful and motivating, or sometimes it can just make someone feel medicalised. So we've just got to be aware of that. And I, I think there's a, a world of difference between telling someone, you know, a younger person that they're becoming at risk of diabetes and a very older person. So if someone, you know, in their 80s develops for the first time um, type 2 diabetes, that's unlikely to have any great clinical relevance in their life. They're very unlikely to develop cardiovascular complications as a result. So it's not to say you shouldn't tell them, but it, you know, it's not likely to have a big impact on their life. Um, 
if you tell them that they've got prediabetes, even more so, very unlikely. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's a website where you can go on and you can put in your risk factors for diabetes and it tells you whether or not you might be at risk of prediabetes. Um, so you go on this website and it tells you you're at risk of developing prediabetes, which is a risk factor for diabetes, which may or may not be a risk factor for something you really care about, which is having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, so you're at risk of having a risk of... I mean, it just gets a bit ridiculous. Um, so, you know, there, there's a world of difference. It might be a really helpful label for someone who's 30 and whose HbA1c is getting into a borderline category. Um, but someone who's 85, I would argue it would just do more harm than good. And, you know, we should allow them to live a bit more freely. Mm. It just comes back to maybe what we were... Um, I remember the, the we did an episode recently on guidelines and how to use clinical guidelines mm. in your clinical practice. And, um, you know, the the fact that there is an enormous amount of nuance based on the patient that's in front of you. Um, yeah. So it sounds like there's a, there's a kind of similar dimension there that you're talking about but um, I mean reflecting on my own experiences with the concept of overdiagnosis I think the first time I really encountered this as a concept was because I'm I'm interested in obstetrics and gynaecology and I was writing an essay for an essay prize about um, ovarian cancer awareness schemes mm -hmm. and that was when it, I, it was first introduced to me this concept that actually screening you know is such an imperfect tool that actually we could be as you say, diagnosing people um, or using the wrong ways of, of sort of alerting people to their risk of potentially having a serious disease. Um, and that that does have, you know, enormous implications for patients and, and their well well-being. And, you know, ultimately, if we use these Im imperfect ways of screening, it means that lots of people may be undergoing interventions that they shouldn't be shouldn't necessarily be undergoing and that was like I mean what like Patton Izzy was saying like it totally blew my mind that mm. you know why why shouldn't we all have an MRI scan every year yeah. to see if there's anything going on inside um you know that that sounds great it's just the resources isn't it um but actually no like I don't want to know if I've got some weird nodule on my kidney that's probably not going to mm. end up being anything um and uh, yeah, just I, I found it a really difficult concept to get my head around um, when I first encountered that concept of like overdiagnosis and, and that kind of uncertainty, I suppose. Um, yeah. So I think it's really it's really interesting, like the way that it is presented at medical or I suppose not presented at medical school as being something that we should particularly be concerning ourselves with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the so there's two things you said. One is about screening for cancer, which is a really big subject, and I think we should cover that. The other is guidelines. And the, the piece of the jigsaw that's missing from every guideline that was ever written is the patient that's in front of you and what they feel about things. I, I had a patient who um, was in her 90s, and she'd had really badly controlled hypertension since her birth, the birth of her child. Um, so for a long, long time. And she didn't get on with any blood pressure medication. Now, in fact, I, I think, you know, she um, she didn't want to be on medication. So she would often, you know, find reasons why she didn't get on with it. Um, but her blood pressure, you know, was appallingly controlled. But as she regularly said to me in when she was in her 80s and approaching 90s, I'm still here. 
you know, actually that was what she chose. She chose not to treat her hypertension and um, she lived a lot longer than most of us will do and very healthy. Um, so, you know, what that patient in front of you thinks is really, really important. And David Haslam, who used to be the head of NICE, very much said, these are guidelines, not tram lines. You don't have to follow them rigidly. You've got to consider things with the patient, come up with a shared understanding of what they want um, and help them understand and navigate it. Um, and for some patients, they will want to minimise their risk as much as possible. Quite happy to take medications, doesn't bother them. They don't want to have a stroke. They'll, and, and we should go with that. Absolutely. Yeah, on the point of about, um, in terms of like your approach differs um, depending on what your patient wants. Do you think that's a, a culture of uh, if you have an appointment and you don't get anything out of it, it's not like a, a productive appointment? I guess like for example, um, I don't know if that's a, it's a cultural thing, but say when whenever my mom goes to an appointment, she feels like if she doesn't walk away with a prescription, um, it's like a trip wasted, yes. why did I go, you know? Do you think, you know, patients booking a consultation they kind of already have an idea what, what they want out of the, the appointment yeah i think so and and you know it's very important we have good discussion about that um but particularly with regard to doing tests and things it's it's very easy for instance to assume that the only thing that can reassure someone is getting tests done um and i think we we underestimate the value um of a doctor's opinion you know sometimes you can say for instance, if someone goes to A&E with chest pain, before they've even seen a, a doctor, they're likely to have had an ECG, a chest x-ray and a troponin and blood's done. Um, whereas if the same patient went to see a GP, we would talk to them about it. We can't access those tests. So it's easier for us not to do those tests. Um, and actually, you know, quite often we'd say, look, this is clearly coming from your rib cage. It's, there's nothing serious. We don't need to do any tests. And they may well go away really happy. I think it's much harder when you're in the hospital because you've got access to those. You know, if you've gone to see a specialist, they're likely to just say, right, let's let's do all the tests that we can. Um, and, and there is a different purpose with hospital medicine. Um, but I think particularly, you know, if you've gone all the way to the hospital and they don't do any tests, you might well feel that you haven't got your money's worth. Um, mm. We don't tend to get criticised for doing a scan or doing a test, even if that actually is harmful. Um, you're, whereas you might worry that you're going to be criticized or complaint because you didn't do a test mm. yeah this is what I was going to say like from my perspective as a, a very junior doctor obviously working in a supervised way in a hospital I think there very much is like that idea of I suppose people would call it defensive medicine um, but also this idea that like the more information you can accrue the easier it's going to be for you to come to a decision about what to you know how to help that person and actually, I found in my experience, it, like a lot of the times it's it's not helpful to like run that extra blood test or, oh, we'll just send bloods off for XYZ and IgA and all of these things. And, you know, yeah. I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily always the right thing to do. And I think the other the other thing it makes me think of is like, for instance, at the moment, we've got a lot of like patients who I'm looking after in the hospital who are essentially medically well they're optimized for discharge you know waiting for like social care and things like that mm. and I'm sure this is the same nearly everywhere that you would work but it still seems to be like they'll have bloods done every day like just as a mm. routine and I just yeah. kind of think 
Or like people who are on end of life and they're still expecting me to bleed them every day. But what are you going to do with these results? Like, if they've got an infection, then are you going to give them antibiotics? Or like, if if their kidney function's like going off a little bit because they're not drinking properly, because they're not in their own environment, like, what are we going to do? Recannulate them and give them fluids? Mm. It's just, I don't know, sometimes I feel like looking for looking for problems that aren't overtly showing themselves can sometimes be a bit more of a I don't know but then again I could never like I would never feel comfortable to like push back against that because I'm only an F1 (laughs) yeah I mean you know ultimately you're part of a team and and you have to go with what the the seniors are advising um the you know it's worth sometimes just saying why 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 are we doing that test so that you know, you understand, and and if they say, just because I told you to, well, maybe you have to do that. But but there's there's a resource implication there, isn't there? I can totally see how you get into a habit of just doing regular blood tests on the patients, but um, you know, the, there's the cost of that to the NHS and to the hospital. There's also, you know, patients hate being in hospital, and you know, one reason is all those invasive tests. Um, so you know, I, I think when we're doing tests, ideally, we should always ask. What what's the value of that test? How's it going to add to what I'm doing? There's a really good campaign, Choosing Wisely, which if um, you know if your listeners if listeners haven't heard about, you know, look it up and see what they're suggesting. Which is an international campaign to try and just help doctors choose more wisely with the tests we do, and that there are certain tests or certain procedures that we we could do well with doing less of. So, for instance, doing plain X-rays in ordinary back pain. Um, is is just usually a complete waste of time. Um, you know, anyone over thirty five is going to show degenerative disease. Um, it, it's not likely to change your management. I mean, it, it's useful for osteoporotic fractures, but that's about it, really. Um, so, why do we do so many plain X rays on backs? Um, and that's one of the things that they've said we could do less of now. You know, how, what's the harm in doing a plain X ray? I mean, the, you know, one harm is just use of resources, and we need to be careful with that. And another, it can confuse the patient, you know, well, it's shown degenerative change. I mean, that sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? Well, does that explain my back pain? Well, not really, because actually most people your age would have degenerative change. So it, it can it can just be quite confusing sometimes. Um, quite a few of the things you brought up, um, I like, I can kind of relate to, like, if you listen to the podcast a lot, well, if you listen to some of the podcasts I've been in a lot, um, especially a few years, a couple of years ago, I'm quite. I often talk about like my own personal experiences because I have a few medical conditions, and um, you mentioned back pain, and you know recently mm. I had to have a spine MRI, and it came back as reported normal incidental finding of a T4 hematoma, and for me I was like, mm. okay, yeah, fine, but if you didn't, if I didn't have like medical knowledge, that that's not mm. really a big thing. You might have been, what what is that? Like, what do I need to do about that? Yeah. And that's yeah. the sort of thing that. Do we need to tell patients that 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 there's mm. that incidental finding, and it's the ethics that come into that as well, mm. that there is that ethical. Do we need to tell patients, especially when with the pre-diabetes as well? Do we should we tell patients? Should we not? And it's the you know weighing it up a bit, um, and I think also you mentioned a few times, you know we need to label the patient with this condition and I think you know sometimes patients want to be given a label 
they want to know mm. what is wrong with them because they are like yeah, they're saying come on i have this chronic condition and i have no idea what it is like it's been driving me yeah. insane i have been dealing with it for years and years and all my tests are coming back normal what is it and they want that yeah. label but similarly sometimes patients don't want this label like or this diagnosis attached to them and i've had mm. like my psychiatrist has been really good he's often said to me i can give you this diagnosis i can also not what do you want mm. do you want to know the diagnosis and he's given me the choice which i think's interesting like the way that yeah. you know he's gives me the it's up to you because do i want to have that knowledge or do i not want to because it can change my outlook on things and it won't go my notes because it's not mm. an official diagnosis if not and yes. i think that's yeah. a quite a common thing that happens in psychiatry as well and yes i take a quite a few medications and it's with a gp shared care sort of pathway mm. and you get the mm. communication that happens and I think that's also really important when you have people who think this could be over-medicalized. And why is this patient having got so many medications? What is going on here? Why? And I think just talking between secondary and primary care is important, saying, okay, so why do we have this situation going on here? And then also talking to the patients, what do you think? So really, like you know, exploring the ideas, concerns, expectations drilled into us from, you know, first year, yeah. exploring, do you know why you're on these medications? Do you know what they're doing? What, why you're taking them? Do you think they help? Because mm. as you said, your lady with hypertension, she, her idea was, I really don't want to take them. And yeah. she didn't, she didn't think they helped. She lived a long and healthy life. And I think it's just all of that is important. And especially, you know, with people within the psychiatry field who when sometimes you know having being said that you know they have a label can be very they find that very degrading or insulting mm -hmm. but others they think actually yes this is what's wrong with me this is yeah. what's wrong with me this is what's been like making me feel so unwell for so long and it makes them feel actually more accepted and they can accept themselves. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, people say like over-medicalized and, but actually sometimes it does need to be medicalized for the patient's benefit. Mm -mm. And yeah. I think all of that is, when you look at it from that perspective, is important that it's individualized to the patient. So mm. you can't really be a doctor who says, I never diagnose my patients with this because sometimes you will have a patient who has it. <laughs> so it's, yeah. you know, it's just a very personalized, individualized care pathway. I mean, that's really good to hear about sharing the idea of a, a diagnosis, particularly in a field like psychiatry, where the diagnoses are, you know, they're clinical diagnoses, they're imprecise. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's not like, doing a biopsy for celiac disease where you know this is celiac disease there's no would you like it or not it, it's kind of what it is um and it's important and 
you know, it's not something you should ignore. Um, because, but with the more imprecise diagnosis, especially psychiatric diagnoses, it's um, it's very difficult to be undiagnosed. Um, I spoke about and wrote quite a bit about um, dementia diagnosis because there was this real push for earlier and earlier diagnosis in dementia. And the earlier you try and diagnose dementia, the greater the risk that you'll you'll get it wrong, because um, what you're what you're saying is the case with dementia is that it is a progressive cognitive decline. And sometimes you might have someone who's got some cognitive errors, problems, but is it going to progress? And if you, you know, once you've got advanced dementia, there's, you know, there's no doubt about it. But when it's, um, you know, earlier and earlier, you're more likely to get it wrong. Now, if, if you have a diagnosis of dementia in your notes and you disagree with it, how do you get that taken off? You know, it, if you're given a medication, you don't want to take it, you just stop taking it. Um, if you don't want to come for your reviews, you just don't come for your reviews. But how do you persuade a doctor to say that you no longer have a diagnosis? And, and actually, you you sort of don't have that. You don't have that right in a sense because you're the doctor's given their opinion. It's their diagnostic opinion. So it, we've got to be very careful with the more imprecise diagnoses. And you know the idea of sharing and saying, would this be helpful for you? Um, I think is is tremendously helpful, mm-hmm. in, particularly in psychiatry. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, when you say how useful would it be to have a diagnosis, I think we're at the moment we've been talking about that in terms of like how useful will it be for the patient's own perception of their um, illness or their condition. But actually, you know, there's there's wider like sociocultural implications of, as you say, being given a diagnosis. And I mean, I'm just thinking about like people having access to financial support because of their illness is very difficult to get that if you haven't got a formal diagnosis I think particularly for mental health conditions um and people may need additional financial or you know physical support that it would be very useful for them to have a diagnosis for that and I think that there's always then going to be that balancing of okay well you don't feel it would be useful to to have this label on what's been making you unwell but without that you're not going to be allowed any support for that illness um so how do we how yeah, do we like no, absolutely. The there, there? yeah definitely i mean there, there's huge benefits in being given a diagnosis so you can understand and like you say you know it, it can open access to things for you um or medication you know you're not you can't give someone ritalin for adhd without having diagnosed adhd you you, you would look it would just look like bad medicine wouldn't it so um yeah it's just Mm. being aware that that the label can be both hugely beneficial and for some people harmful particularly in those softer areas you know i think we should come on to some of the other issues like like cancer screening for instance where it's you know on the surface it seems more clear-cut you've looked at it on a microscope and and it's you've proven it's cancer how can that ever be harmful and yet you know, it's in, intuitively doesn't seem harmful. You just think, well, if I've got cancer, I need to know about it. Um, so it's very hard to get your head around how it could be really harmful to be, mm. to have your cancer diagnosed. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I'm just thinking about, the those tensions between people who think that things are over-medicalised and other people who have maybe struggled to access medical care um, because of the lack of medicalization i suppose you, you know it's a very very um 
high profile issue in obstetrics and gynecology at the moment, obviously with the Ockenden report. And there are two quite distinct, you know, areas of thinking where, which is, which are at totally different ends of the spectrum between people who think that birth has always been over medicalized. And that's the reason why we're having all these problems. And to the other end where people are saying, actually, when I asked for medicalization, when I asked for my cesarean section, I didn't get it. Um, and that mm. was, that was the reason why yeah. I ended up having so, so many problems. And yeah, I, I guess like, as you were saying, like it's, there's, I, I think those tensions are probably always going to exist, but how do we navigate them as clinicians, I suppose, is, is the real question. Yeah. I think cesareans in obstetrics, that's particularly fraught, isn't it? Even if you try to get it right, it's, it's very difficult. You know, the, there's no doubt that overall, we could probably do le- fewer cesareans, but for the woman in front of you, actually, probably the safest way to deliver your baby for the baby's sake is a cesarean. You know, the baby's at very little risk with a planned cesarean. So it's quite hard to um, to say that it's... You, you can't really argue it's, it's the safest, that, that a normal delivery would be safer for the baby. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's fraught. I'm glad I'm not an obstetrician. <laughs> It's very difficult. I think um, I think one thing with screening, because I was thinking of obs and gynae and then cervical screening, is mm. that you all just came together. Like I think because Anna was saying obs and gynae, I remember my obs and gynae placement, there was a lot of cervical screens and smears that happened. Um, what I remember is that we were always taught that you have to, f- for a screening programme to be approved and to happen, it has to follow strict criteria. So like mm. the outcomes are... And I think that's where it, you know, to make sure it's not over medicalized. So we're not just doing it for the sake of it. Um, and so, you know, you're not actually harming people by doing the screening. So it's like, you know, risk benefit, yeah. you know, for the people who go through often quite invasive tests, you know, women often decline a cervical smear because they're scared of it's an, it's not a pleasant experience. Like, imagine like because um, it's it's quite invasive often yeah. it's painful sometimes and people can often feel like this is not something I want to be doing and that, mm. for the risk that I think I'm actually going to get but then when it does pick something up then actually was it worth it I think the yeah. woman would say yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right about um, screening criteria. And so there's the UK National Screening Committee that decides whether or not um, screening is a good idea or not. And they look at all sorts of things, not just the cancer screenings, but, you know, should we be screening people for blood pressure checks or atrial fibrillation or all sorts of things? And, And they give some very measured judgments um, so they have approved cervical screening, bowel screening, breast screening, but they haven't approved any other cancer screening because the evidence is they do more harm than good. But screening can come in the back door. So if you look at prostate screening, the UK National Screening Committee says it does more harm than good to screen men, to offer men prostate screening. But that doesn't stop men asking for a PSA test or well-meaning charities mm. putting adverts up on bus stops encouraging men to check their risk. You go on to you know a certain website where you're encouraged to go and check your risk and you're over 50 like I am. You're Just on the basis of that, you're told you're at risk. Go and see your GP to talk about a PSA test. Now, the problem is 
those well-meaning charities aren't as aren't, in my opinion anything like as good as they should be at telling men the potential downside of it so you know for PSA screening it's not just the invasive blood test or rectal exam or the potential for biopsies and false positive raised PSAs the biggest issue is finding an early prostate cancer diagnosis that's never going to harm you in your lifetime but ending up having quite radical treatment if you know if the treatment was just take a vitamin pill or you know a really simple procedure you wouldn't mind doing that unnecessarily but men will still come to a GP And, and I don't think we have the right to refuse a PSA test but I think they need to know what they're letting themselves in for um, so there's a lot of screening that happens, even though it's not recommended. Comes back to the ethics thing again. You know, we we can't just assume that things are are good. We'll we'll do this blood test on everyone, and and we'll find all these cancers yeah. earlier. Um, yeah. But I think that is that is like the way it's presented to you at medical school. So then, when you're presented with this kind of information, mm. you do, you think, gosh, this can't like this can't possibly be true. Um, but, you know, actually following the mm. evidence when it's counterintuitive to what you've been told yeah. is very, very challenging. And I think that's why, I mean, I always see Mar- is it Margaret McCarthy is a big... Um, you met Margaret McCartney, Margaret yeah, McCartney. I follow her on Twitter and yeah. I always see her railing against the, the pulse checks for AF and things like that. And it, it was actually reading a lot of her that, that yeah. helped me understand properly why... Um, you know why these things weren't always good just because oh it seems like a good idea we'll give everyone a ECG in the town centre and yeah. we'll see what happens she's I mean she's been a big influence on on my thinking as well she's one of the you know the most notable voices of caution and just saying hold on what does the evidence say so you know one of the things that she challenges doctors on is um should we recommend that women check their breasts every month for lumps you know it seems an obvious thing to do it, it's taught in medical school um loads of my trainees just go well of course i do you know it's good practice actually when you do studies and you encourage a certain number of women to check their breasts every month and a certain number of women not to the women that check their breasts are just more likely to find benign lumps and have procedures done the incidence of breast cancer is the same. Um, So, you know, there's a world of difference between ignoring a lump when you find it and actively telling women to look for lumps every month. Um, And yet it's common wisdom that we should do that. It's harmful practice. There's a whole charity set up to encourage women to do it. Um, There's well-meaning, but I think hasn't looked at the evidence. So even simple things like that is screening. It's taking healthy people and encouraging them to do some health intervention, hoping to pick up disease earlier so it's more treatable. Um, And it seems like a sensible thing to do, but you have to go and look at the hard evidence and be very dispassionate about it to find out whether actually that's good advice. And turns out it's bad advice. But other doctors will look at you in horror when you say that. We'll discuss a little bit more about overdiagnosis, but that'll be right after this message from our sponsor. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, 
and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. So, why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, that's interesting because it's definitely something that I get taught at medical school. Um, you know, say when a woman come in and say that, um, yeah, I check my breasts regularly, and mm. you kind of encourage them them to mm. keep doing it. Like, um, um, I think they call it like like opportunistic like health promotion. I think a really good way to put it into like a medical school context is when you're in early years. You know, they say, "Oh, how would you manage this condition?" You say, "Oh, I'd take bloods, I'd do an X-ray." But then when you get to like fourth and fifth year, um, you can I take bloods, I do an, and then the clinical teaching fellow stops you and goes, which bloods? And I'm like, mm. uh, yeah. um, use an ease. Why? What? Because everybody <laughs> like, gets them, obviously. Um, <laughs> because, because every, because, because, yeah. um, and, and they're like, yeah, but why do you need to use an ease? And, you know, mm-hmm. to like actually, you know, clinically reason, and it's all clinical reasoning, why do you actually mm. need it you know you can actually save some or oh, a bottle of blood <laughs> which in oh. some patients mm. is 20 seconds less of a really horrible test that they really don't like and yeah. you know that's something that you know you might notice in medical school when you get through the years that actually they do start asking you well come on why are you doing the bloods why are you doing the ecg yeah. why an x-ray why not an mri why a ct and not an x-ray and yeah. it is all clin- it comes down to clinical reasoning and it's interesting and now i'm all into ethics again <laughs> because i'm like what do i actually want <laughs> so yeah but it, it just shows you're thinking like a mature doctor when you're thinking why what tests do i want to do how are they going to influence and change my practice change the management here and you know with anyone going into hospital you know usually using ease at least once you know could well change your management it's a pretty good test but there are other blood tests like measuring anti-nuclear antibodies for instance that you know you need to think okay why am I really doing that in this patient it it just means you're thinking like a mature doctor and thinking through what you're ordering and why and it also stops you ordering tests that aren't going to be helpful so you know if I see someone in um, general practice with some chest pain and I want to rule out exertional angina I might do a baseline ECG, but it's not going to rule out angina. I shouldn't be too reassured by a normal ECG if they've got exertional chest pain. They need some dynamic test. Whereas if the pain is clearly musculoskeletal, I don't need an ECG at all. So I think particularly in GP, it's actually quite good being a bit des- a bit distant from the tests. I mean, we can do ECGs in-house, but because they're not just at your fingertips, you have to think a bit more, do I want that test? Is that going to be helpful to my patient? And that's that's really good practice. It really helps, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think just going along um, Izzy's point about clinical reasoning, um, I, I was reflecting about this, about, um, you know, in medical school and also when you're doing exams, doing nothing is never really, like, an mm. option. Yeah, in Onoski, they never give you a patient who hasn't got anything wrong with them. And I think that would be such a good Onoski because yeah. I find a lot of my yeah. on-calls, like especially <laughs> overnight and stuff, the only therapeutic, mm. this is what this is what I tell my medical students who are shadowing me, the only therapeutic intervention sometimes people need is to know that they've spoken to a doctor. 
and so much of my time and and often it's convincing nurses as well and saying well look you know we've have got these bloods from earlier on today that haven't showed anything untoward their new score is fine obviously you have more evidence than just what the patient tells you but Mm. I think a lot of my job is is um trying to be confident in my clinical assessment that someone doesn't currently have an acute problem yeah. and and yeah it's, it's not something you go to a simulation session yeah. you expect to be presented with six simulator patients that have got an acute problem not that's not useful it's very mm. useful yeah. um but actually in the, the real life situation that the acute problems are very much outnumbered by or sometimes you get called to like the other day i got called to see a man who'd had a problem with his eye for four years in the middle of the night i was like <laughs> is this I, asked, I said is, is this bothering well, you now well, and he said no not really well <laughs> Anna that means I got several of my OSCE stations wrong because I was quite a few times like this is a patient presenting with a normal vascular exam this is a patient presenting with a normal spinal <laughs> exam <laughs> so mm. who knows that's that's probably oh, well, where some of my OSCEs went a bit no, I'm sure it's just your medical school <laughs> being um more forward thinking than mine oh who knows but in in general practice we often we call it the diagnostic test of time where you know actually if my clinical feeling that this is a temporary non-serious thing is correct then you know I sometimes say well well the proof of the pudding will be you should get better in the next week or two so if you don't then I need to start doing tests rather than I've got to do tests now and you know again that's that's much easier to in general practice and and in the real world compared with exams mm-hmm. definitely but we shouldn't underestimate the value of, of a doctor's judgment. Neither should we overestimate it. You know, it's very easy to overestimate the value of some of the things that we, we do. So, for instance, if a leg is swollen, clinical judgment of is this a DVT or not it, is actually probably not as reliable as we like to think. Whereas if it's completely not swollen, then I can reassure the patient that it absolutely isn't a DVT. So you need to know where clinical judgment is quite rocky. Um, or uncertain but also to be able to be certain when you can be certain and then not subject the person to Mm. lots of unnecessary and I would imagine a lot of that comes with experience yeah Yeah, definitely yeah I think we've touched on quite a few different aspects in terms of um, too much medicine and yeah just Mm. as we're just kind of rounding up the episode um, I guess for um, medical students and also newly qualified doctors have you got any tips for um, junior doctors going forward um, to not practice too much medicine. Yeah, I, I think the first thing, just just be aware of it as a concept, that it's a potential problem. Um, challenge accepted norms, like, for instance, that it's always better to know, or that prevention is always better than cure. You know, some, you know, stopping smoking is a good prevention thing that's better than cure. But some of the medical interventions to try and prevent something may actually be more harmful than cure so that's not to say that prevention can't be better than cure or that knowing stuff can't be good but they're not always good don't accept things as mantras so question what you're told and what you're taught and and be aware and and just start reading about it and alongside your other you know a lot of the the medical core curriculum you need to read pick up margaret mccartney's book the patient paradox follow her on twitter um don't, it can be a bit overwhelming because sometimes it can it can be a little bit depressing if you're not careful because mm. you just think oh, we keep harming people but we need to be aware of it um i would also say don't fall into the drug rep trap 
drug sponsorship lunches. I mean, we we could spend a whole podcast. I'd come back and talk to you another podcast if you like about pharma. Um, yeah. But yeah, question that. Mm. They don't give them out because they're friendly. They mm. give them out because they know it's going to influence us and make us prescribe their, their drugs more. And we need to cut the ties with industry. Bad so pharma. That's a little plug. Then gold um, ego, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're good pharma as well. You know, we need them. We wouldn't have any drugs if it wasn't for them. But we need to be wise about it. And that needs to start as a medical student don't get too excited by freebies because you know they uh, well bad news. A pen is <laughs> no you can not have even a pen pens. from the mdu yeah, yeah my pen, from the MDU. i've just refreshed my pens because um, they came to give us a talk yeah. at the end of our like for, for like our final lectures they came to give mm. us a talk so i've just refreshed my bma and mdu nice. pens it's great bma <laughs> and mdu pens are completely <laughs> fine because they're nothing to do with patients um but um just you know you're starting out so just ask yourself do you you know can you keep yourself actually clean and separate from conflicts of interest right from the beginning um rather than make mistakes like my generation have made and continue to make so that would be something and then just as you start to do tests question why am i doing this test as much as you're allowed within working with a firm structure and for seniors that you know you need to work within your team and recognize that, that you're junior and you know many times you have to take your lead from your seniors but it's good to just start questioning them and um yeah keep thinking broadly really yeah, that's great thank you yeah i'll definitely yeah. um take a few minutes and actually question myself next time i see free lunches and free sandwiches yeah. on award yeah thank you That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks' time, you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. I'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students to find the show. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.